What's your dream? What's your goal? What's your motivation? What's important to you? What's your passion? What can you do to change the world? This is What's Involved. Conversations with thought leaders and change makers from around the world. Hear stories of hope and inspiration to help motivate people like you to live your life, find your passion, and live your dream. Together, we can all bring positive change to our world. Now, here's your host, David Watts. And once again, it is What's Involved. It is so good to have you along with us. I got a great guest on this uh, on this episode, and I've been so looking forward to, to having a chat with him. Um, and, and I said to him earlier on, uh, just before we went on here, I said, you know, I'm sure I have met you because we've both sort of walked in, in similar uh, halls, but I feel like I've known him for a very long time. Who is he? He is none other than Dan Moyani. Hello, Dan. Hello, David. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. And as I said, I'm excited to chat to you because, you know, first and foremost, uh, uh, to a lot of South Africans, um, you may be known most as, uh, or, or most well known as a radio presenter, but there's a whole bunch more to you. And uh, one of the things is uh, the book that you've recently launched. It's called I Don't Want to Die Unknown. And then just underneath that, we need to listen to our inner voice. So, yeah, and then there's so much in this book. I mean, when, when I read it, you know, I thought to myself, if a, if a radio presenter turns to writing, it could be dodgy, but you're not a radio presenter first and foremost. So let's go right back to the beginning and, <laughs> and talk to me about Dan Moyani. Where were you born? Talk to me about childhood. I need to know the story of Dan. I, I know you are, you say you're excited. I, I've been nervous about being on the other side of, of this equation that you and I have been used to for so many years as people who've worked in the media. But uh, I really am grateful uh, for the opportunity you've given me, David, to have this conversation. I literally do not take it for granted. I really appreciate it. Um, the story of our lives, uh, all of us, including yours, uh, unique stories, and they all uh, go across a number of years, different circumstances, different environments. And there's a lot of detail that we, we go through and we experience in, in our lives. So sometimes it's very difficult in a few minutes to really uh, put it out there and express it uh, very clearly. I'll try and do my best. Even in the book uh, that I published last year in November, that's 2021 November, I Don't Want to Die Unknown, We Need to Listen to Our Inner Voice, it contains some moments uh, that came to mind and, and came to the fore when I was busy with the project. I was born and bred at White City Jabavu in Soweto in uh, um, 1959 uh, in a neighborhood uh, that was very tough. I mean, White City Jabavu has a nickname, which I don't know where it came from. And as I was growing up, it's called Kansas City, which is after the American city, Kansas. I have no clue why the people locally at the time on the ground decided to, to name it that. I don't want to lie to you. I'm sure there's a good reason. You know, Sowetans are very good at giving nicknames uh, to, 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 to places and people and, and life. And the township lingo is very rich uh, with that kind of, um, of language. So growing up in Kansas, as we used to call it, White City Jababu in Soweto in the, in the 60s was not easy. 
that neighborhood, gangsters around, uh, like you see in many townships, sadly, today in South Africa, and, 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 and tough neighborhoods. And I guess many cities in the world have got those neighborhoods that you know are very tough neighborhoods uh, for various reasons. And, and on the ground, you'll find gangs. And, and so I grew up in that kind of an environment. But fortunately, I had two parents, my mom and my dad, who were Christians, very staunch Christians. And my father, having been a mine worker, later on a laborer, my mom was a domestic worker. And, and later on, her last job, she worked at a, at a crash in, 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 in Langlachte, in, in Johannesburg. My father's last job was a laborer at foreign to work school, at foreign to high school in Auckland Park in Johannesburg. They brought me up uh, very strictly and to appreciate certain values. A uh, main value was education. So while I was roaming the streets and running around, and thankfully, uh, David, I never joined any gang, although there were attempts to force me into 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 a gang now and again. That was their life in the in the in, in the in the in the neighborhood those days. I focused on my books. And I was lucky to have good friends from school and, uh, and of course, being involved in church as a youngster. Uh, even at some point, I, was, uh, I became a church youth leader uh, towards the 70s. That sort of assisted me to keep my head focused uh, straight on, uh, on education. So I did my part there. I grew up in the streets kicking the soccer ball and playing football and falling in love with Morocco Swilos, uh, Big 15 at the time. Not a great brand today to be associated with, but they've oh, done very well. Those then, days, it was Orlando Pirates and Swilos long yeah. before Kaiser Chiefs, David. I know you support Chiefs. I know. I'm a, <laughs> uh, uh, dude, no worries. I am a big-time Pirates supporter. I support... Just about across the board, if, if you can name uh, a sports team that has been losing consistently over the last little while, I probably support them. And, and Pirates is right up there. <laughs> no comment. I don't want to get in trouble with <laughs> Dr. Evan Koza. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so, 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 while, while you were there, sorry, Dan, let's, let's just, uh, just have a look. Because you say, and, and I'm going to ask you this question, that, that studying and books were important to you and obviously your, your religious uh, uh, sort of upbringing and, and your outlook. Uh, so did your parents go, as so many parents across the board did, um, I know I was born, uh, when was I born? 67, two, two years uh, um, before you. Um, and... Uh, my parents were very, very, I suppose these days you might say they came from the wrong side of the track because we weren't wealthy at all. And to them, I needed to go to school, study hard and become either a banker, a doctor, a lawyer or an accountant. So you can imagine their dismay when I said I wanted to be a radio announcer. <laughs> yeah, anyway, you if you were born in 1967, I'm eight years older than you. Oh, so that's what, right, yes. What, 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 what? What happened was, uh, because my parents never went to school, uh, my father growing up in the village and my mom growing up in the, in the townships, uh, they, my father was very clear that the minimum he expected from the minimum was to get my metric. He never even had, he used to say to me, I don't even have a standard one. You'll, you'll be the first one in this family, in my line of, of, of family to get a metric. So that was a minimum. 
And then later on, as I did well at school, I did my best at school. I loved maths. I loved science. And uh, knowing what I know today about myself, I should have chosen history and drama. And you were smarter than me, David, because you knew very early on that you wanted to be in this in this field of media journalism. I grew up wanting to be a pediatrician, growing up to wanting to be a doctor. That was a kind of influence because around me, my uncles, my parents, and then, ah, this guy is smart. He like he's doing well in maths and science. Yeah, he's going to become Doctor Moyana. So I used to fancy myself you know, dressed in this white coat with a stethoscope hanging over my shoulders and walking down the corridors of Baraguan of hospital. I had an aunt, uh, Aunt Tandy, who used to work there. She was a matron at, at Baraguan of hospital. So each time we went to visit her when she was at work with my mom. I would hear the speakers be, you know, booming out there. Uh, Dr. Watts, you are needed in this section. Dr. Watts, please. And I used to say, ah, one day they're going to say, Dr. Moyana, you're needed. <laughs> so that was it. So there was an influence at home. Get metric the minimum, but also get a good education and go for a career that will be viewed as prestigious, as you correctly said, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an accountant, being an engineer, but 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 many of those careers, as you would well know, David, were not really open uh, to Black South Africans at the time because of the segregated system of education under apartheid those many years ago. So you had to choose very carefully. So I was going to be uh, pursuing a medical profession. Uh, that was a dream at the time. All right, but then uh, obviously that couldn't happen, and and I, th- I think even to today. You know, we, we we sort of almost discount the life that you led in in those times, and and you talk about education and going to school, but even that wasn't easy. Um, and the level mm. of education mm. was was kind of a little a little different. So, you know, I, I take my hat off to 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 people like yourselves, and I've had the the privilege of speaking to to many South Africans that, despite everything, have managed. Um, to go on and to create a life and a legacy. So hats off to you. Dan, when we come back, I'd like to uh, move on a little bit because you didn't stay uh, in South Africa for a while due to one or two little things, and you decided it was uh, (laughs) time to move along. So uh, when we come back, we're going to chat more uh, about that. My special guest is Dan Moyani, um, author of I Don't Want to Die Unknown. We need to listen to our inner voice. This is What's Involved. We're back in a bit. You're listening to What's Involved with David Watts. Have you been to our website? Check it out, www.whatsinvolved.com. And while you're there, click on the coffee mug icon and buy David a cup of coffee. He'll love it. And we're back. What's Involved it is. My guest is Dan Moyani. And we're talking about his book, I Don't Want to Die Unknown. We need to listen to our inner voice. So just before the break, we uh, said to, to Dan, I said I'd like to find out because there was one or two small issues and uh, they caused Dan to decide maybe South Africa wasn't the best place to be. Talk to me about that, Dan. Well, growing up in Soweto in the 60s, there was no way you would avoid, if you were young, as I've said, uh, 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 being... Uh, 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 a way be a way not not being asked to join a gang, but uh, aware of the gangs around you, of the need to protect yourself. You know, there's a lot of violence. Uh, uh, uh. The difference between now and then is that those days there were fewer guns and and stuff, and the, and and the and the Tsotsis of the time used knives and other sharp objects. Uh, 
So one was exposed to that. The second thing, you you grew up being aware at some point that uh, you live in a country where the, the, there's two countries. You have uh, the, the black country and you've got the white country. And then somewhere in between, other people would, would fall into this. So you'd have Indian townships, you'd have colored townships, and you'd have black townships. My mom was colored. My mom was born in Naisna uh, uh, of a Cape Malay father and a half Khoisan, half Dutch mother. My father, Tsonga, his ancestral home in, in central uh, Mozambique, and he came to South Africa in 1929, 1930, as a 16-year-old to work in the mines. And he settled in Limpopo in the Sibasa area before he moved to Johannesburg. As a young teenager, he had no choice because his father had died. And as the eldest son, he had to come to South Africa. So you were aware of the labor relations. You were aware of migrant labor. Uh, you become aware as you grow up. And the other thing you become aware of is that there's racism in the country. I mean, I was called the K-word, and I write about it in the book when I was young and I was playing with this with this man, uh, with this boy, rather, uh, who, who's, whose parents, my mom was a domestic worker for, she used to iron, wash clothes and iron for that home. And, and one day he just called me the K-word when we were playing, and I didn't even understand where that came from. When I engaged my father, he then gave me a bit of a lesson about South Africa. So I learned very early on what is what. So as you grow older, then you become involved in community. I was in the debating uh, team at school, and then you are reading up, and I, will, I joined a library, so you're exposed to information. And as you get into high school, you then take part in meetings. I joined the student Christian movement in 1973 at Mulapo Secondary School, attending their meetings. But those meetings were more political than religious. Yes, you'd open with a prayer, there would be scripture reading, but by the end of it, we'll be talking about social justice, about the lack of justice or injustice in the country. And then one got exposed more and more, became more politically aware. By the time it was 1976, I was uh, at Morris Isaacson High School, my senior who became a student leader of the time, renowned leader, Tsiyeti Mashinini. He was the chairman of our debating team. I was part of his team. I was highly politicized by the time uh, in terms of awareness and consciousness. And, and, and then we marched, as you know, David, uh, June 16, marching, taking part in the march. And one carried on participating in student activity. Little did I know that I had become a person of interest to the South African apartheid security branch. And um, by 1978, many of my colleagues and comrades had either skipped the country, had been in detention, some of them had disappeared, and uh, and and uh, I carried on school uh, doing O-levels uh, through a correspondence college because my father said, I don't care what you're doing in the streets, making petrol bombs, marching, demonstrating, throwing stones, you will get your matric. So my father was very clear. So there was no schooling from 1976, really, in Soweto of any notable worth from 1976, 77, 78. Each time we gathered at school, the police would raid the schools. So we really didn't have much uh, to learn. But then I had to go to town, to Johannesburg, and enrolled at this Tarrant Correspondence College and did my O-levels there. And, uh, and that was 1978. And two weeks after I wrote my exams, my O-level exams with the University of London, I was raided. And I hadn't been staying at home all the time because we had been warned that the security police, the security branch were beginning to look for us. I was warned uh, that my name was on a list. I did, never saw that list. I didn't know what they were talking about. 
and I do not know even understand why myself particularly I would be I would be fingered as a person of interest. But that was a life because if you were involved in protests, if you're taking part in meetings, we were making placards and stuff. The security branch had its eyes and ears with the the, the impimpies, as we call them, people who betrayed us. And they came with one of them, one early morning, 2 a.m., raided my home in February 1979, just two weeks after I wrote my last exam uh, 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 in, in Bramfontein. And they interrogated me and my parents and at home. They surrounded the home. Oh, I can't remember now how long that took because it was dark when they arrived, when they left, the sun was up. And, and they left me behind. Thankfully, I, I was not taken in by them. And uh, after that, after they left, I said to my father, I don't want to die. I don't think uh, these guys are coming from John Foster. I don't know what's going to happen. And they came back. But by then I was gone, David. I decided to leave the country and skip to Mozambique. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's one of those strange things because we often forget, and that's why I love having these kind of conversations, because this is stuff that needs to be talked about. And I'm, I'm so glad I'm chatting to you and you've got uh, the book where you, you lay out all of this kind of stuff because it must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, in those days, it was it was bad. Make no mistake, it was bad. So you managed to get out and get into... Mozambique. What was the difference there? Because in in my travels and in my visits to Mozambique, um, I found it to be an incredible country, very sort of cosmopolitan. And and but also <laughs> yeah. when I was going there uh, many years ago, you could see signs of of the war there all the time along the the sides of the roads, uh, the buildings in Maputo. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, your time in Mozambique. Yeah, remember, I'm 19 years old at the time, David, and I have this dream of becoming a doctor, just reaching exams, and I still have this thing in my head that when I get across, I will pursue my education. That was my first, my first thought. But crossing the border into Mozambique, the first thing that still remains with me at the border, uh, it's the smell of the in the air. You know, it's it's funny. I don't know if it's psychological or whatever. Every place has its own smell, you know. If, and, and 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 over the time, I would I would miss the smells of Soweto, you know, when I was there, because Mozambique is by the coast, Maputo is by the coast, so the air is thick with humidity. The sea is not far. It's like the the saltiness of the sea, of the beautiful ocean air is 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 pervading everywhere. And I I, I the first thing I that struck me was freedom. I thought, is this what freedom is like? Because remember, as students in South Africa in the 70s, we also supported Frelimo. There were pro-Frelimo rallies here, which were banned, which were led at the time by, by South African uh, student organization, SASO, that was started by the likes of Steve Biko and, and others. So we were aware that Frelimo was waging a war of independence against the Portuguese colonial regime. So getting in there into a land that was now free, remember, uh, uh, Mozambique became independent in 1975. Now I'm there four years after. So it's still very new. You look at, I saw young people walking hand in hand, people of all color, backgrounds and stuff. And actually it's in Maputo where I made friends from all over the world. I still maintain my friendships with guys from Sweden, from Norway, from Canada. People were there from all over the world. And I thought, wow, black and white and colored. And, and I thought, this is freedom. This is what this thing is supposed to be alive. 
And I thought, wow, but it was also so confusing as well because I had I, I had to fashion a future where I still, I'm still going to get education. So there was excitement. Uh, when I got there, there, there was a realization that uh, freedom is possible and we, are, we have to carry on the, the, the struggle. And then I wanted to join the ANC. I had to look and find the ANC, which was not easy, uh, David, as you can imagine. As you said, Ella, times were tough. People were, 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 were suspicious of you. When I left South Africa, I, I could not tell anybody that I, 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 I'm looked after. Who can I trust? I only trusted an uncle of mine who's now passed on. May, may his soul rest in peace, Uncle Joannis Chauke. Uh, 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 so, so he helped me to leave the country. So, so, but you get into Mozambique, you're not known to many people. You don't know. But somehow, using my street smart uh, lessons from Soweto, I managed to track down a group of South African students uh, who were studying at Eduardo Monjani University. And I happened to recognize one of them in the streets in an area where the student residence was after I'd been tipped off that they, they are there. And, and then it, it, it was one of the leaders from, from the Soweto student uprising, Ino Sunguchani, who was at Naledi High when the, whole, when the whole thing broke up early in 1976, before June 1976, because there was a buildup to June 1976. And then we clicked, and then I managed then to be able to, 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 to join the ANC there on the ground in, in Maputo as a young person. And that uh, assisted me to have a community, but I needed to make a livelihood because I couldn't study David, as you can understand. I didn't have a piece of paper from anywhere to prove that I had passed uh, my O-levels. I didn't even know what I, my results were because I left the country after two weeks after I wrote the, the exams. So I did not know the results. And, and then with that connection, I then got more confident to live there and make a life for myself. Then I made friends with a, a, a white Mozambican journalist, uh, 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 Batista, whom I bumped into at, at a weekly magazine that I worked there uh, after having written a poem about June 76, asking if anybody can translate and publish it. The Tempo weekly magazine uh, used to publish in towards the back pages, some poetry and stuff. And this guy then took a liking to me. He translated my poem. It was published in September 1979 there. We became buddies. He introduced me to one of Mozambique's veteran journalists, Fernando Lima. He's still busy at journalism today in Maputo, despite all the challenges. And, um, and uh, yeah, he then introduced me to Ian Christie, a Scots journalist who was the editor of the English a magazine for, for, for Mozambique Information Agency. And that's how I entered into the world of media. That was now early 1980. Wonderful stuff. Uh, when we come back, let's chat a little bit more about that and then uh, how you came back to South Africa and uh, got into radio because you were, and you said it right from the beginning, your aim was never to be in radio. Um, and, and the fact that you ended up uh, there and, and, and have achieved what you've achieved to me is is... It's just fantastic. My guest is Dan Mayani. We're talking about his book, I Don't Want to Die Unknown. We need to listen to our inner voice. This is What's Involved. We'll be back with more from Dan. We'll be right back with more What's Involved. David would love to hear from you. To leave a voice message, visit whatsinvolved.com and click drop me a voice note. And we're back. What's Involved? My guest is Dan Mayani. So just before the break, uh, you'd started off and uh, you'd started your journalistic career in Mozambique. But then, Dan, what happened? Because you were there um, and, and 
you know, you, you obviously were creating um, a reputation. People were getting to know you. Take me through that bit and, and how you ended up back here in uh, our beloved South Africa. David, uh, remember, I think it's important for me when I tell my story to highlight the fact that I did not go into media because uh, I wanted to, like you. You chose journalism. I, I went into media because I needed a job. It was about livelihood. Uh, uh, yes, I was part of the ANC, South African community, with lots of people from South Africa uh, and, and Mozambicans uh, 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 who were together in, in, in Maputo. So I was looking for a job. It was a livelihood thing. So I, I meet uh, Ian Christie. I meet Francis Christie. And I, I mentioned their names because they became very close uh, to me over the years. And a seasoned journalist coming from Scotland, having settled in Tanzania in the early 70s. And uh, were sympathetic and 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 expressed their solidarity with the struggle of the people of Mozambique who are independent. So I'm introduced to them by Fernando Lima, and they said, "Yeah, uh, who are you?" So I tell them a bit my story, what I've just told them from Soweto, blah blah blah. They said, "What do you want?" I said, "Well, I'm looking for a job." They said, "Well, we we can maybe take you as an intern of sorts." So I became like what they used to call David in the old days in newspapers, a copy boy. I don't know if you remember in newspapers. I don't know if what I've never worked in a newspaper myself, but where you'll fetch copy, you'll make coffee for the editor. Like you you do all this, you run around, you go and do this and go and get this. I don't know if you remember, David. Yeah, listen, in my time when I got to, believe it or not, Prime Media, I was essentially um, what they called a gopher. So it was go for this, go <laughs> for that, go it. for the next yes, thing. Yes, that's it. That goes um, for it. <laughs> you know, and, and working ridiculous hours, just wanting the chance to to talk to somebody yeah. and, and to get your foot in the door and falling asleep yeah, on radio yeah. station floors. <laughs> yep. Know what it is. Yeah so, yeah, so that's exactly what it was. And then I said, fine. So they took me in and then I joined the English service of the Mozambique News Agency. Uh, 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 and remember, uh, David, that time Mozambique was a one-party state with Frelimo being very socialistic. So uh, everything was, was state-owned. So I joined, and that was now in the early part of 79. Within a few months, uh, uh, um, uh, Zimbabwe's independence was, was coming in April uh, that year. Uh, if you Many people may not know, but ZANU-PF used to broadcast from Radio Mozambique Studios in Maputo, what they used to call Radio Chimurenda, which was Radio Freedom for 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 the for Zanu in Zanu PF in, in Zimbabwe, they were using the same frequencies, shortwave frequencies that LM Radio used to use, the famous old LM Radio music radio. So when Mozambique became independent in '75, LM Radio shut down, and then Frelimu used those airwaves to uh, to donate or contribute to. Uh, radio communication for ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe. Then ZANU's independence is coming. What to do with those frequencies? They, uh, Frelimo asked Ian Christie, who was working in, in, at Mozambique News, to, to carry on using those frequencies and set up an English radio service at the time with a sole main aim to counter apartheid propaganda because South African uh, SABC News was being used to to uh, to broadcast and disseminate apartheid propaganda. So Frelimo felt that there was a need to counter that and then and support the struggle for, for freedom and against apartheid in South Africa. So Ian was asked to do that. And when he went uh, uh, in April to start that service, he was alone 
And then he took me with. He had handed me, he said, no, come with me. Let's set up this thing. This way to you continue being a gopher for us, but on radio. So I gophered around until about September. So like for more than nine months, I, 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 nearly nine months, yeah, more than nine months. I did not write a single story. I was just running around. And then I started loving that stuff. I started loving, started writing and started reading and reporting from a junior. I was an intern, then gophering. Then I was given a job as, a, as an intern and then junior reporter and all of that. So I started working in radio in June 1980. And that was my uh, 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 blessing in disguise because I grabbed that bull by the horn, David. I just loved it. And then throughout the years, by 1985, I had been assessed, evaluated, given given tasks. They had a system where you are on the job training, but once a year you get an evaluation. And you are not evaluated by your direct editor. You are evaluated by another editor. Plus, I was being trained technically. So by 1985, I could I could DJ myself. I could go on air by myself. I could produce and write and stuff. And I was training as well. By 1985, I was promoted to be the deputy head of the English service of Radio Mozambique. And that's when I came to the attention of BBC World Service, who then offered me a, a role as a stringer for Focus on Africa, which is one of their flagship uh, continental news programs. At the time, it was only on radio. So from 1985 until 91, I was the BBC correspondent in Mozambique, on top of being working as well for for, for Radio Mozambique and having that uh, deputy managerial job. And when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in February 1990 uh, by President F.W. de Klerk, I, we were watching this on TV with some South African comrades and everybody, tears and joy and stuff. I looked at my wife. I said, I'm going back home. So coming back home in 91 was because South Africa was now changing. And that was the feeling. But I arrived at uh, Jan Smart's airport, now OR Tambo International Airport. And I was detained there for a few hours, interrogated, uh, because uh, I then realized, indeed, my name had been on some list. But I was not arrested, thankfully. Uh, I was let go, and then I came in home after uh, having been away for 12 years. Wow, what a, what a journey! And uh, I'm, I just think when you when you're talking about the, the the being able to read and write and and operate the desk, we always used to call it flying the <laughs> desk, maybe because we had aspirations of being pilots. I'm not sure, um, but in those days, that was a that was a lot of work, and and specifically if you're working now. For the and splicing the tapes, David, is splicing the tapes. Don't Do you remember those, those quarter-inch tapes <laughs> and you have to cut out? The, oh, I remember, and then you have to sit there and cut out syllables. And, oh, man, it was horrible. Um, I asked which, my youngest son, I asked my youngest son the other day, I said, Do you know what's a telex machine? What's a telex machine? I started writing news when we used to use telex, not fax, telex machines. So he says, no, what is that? So I Googled for him, I showed him. He said, what is this thing? I said, well, it was very useful for those days when we used to write stories and send them across the world to the BBC and everybody, to the Beep and everybody else. So he said, well, those are the days. Yeah, waiting for those telex machines to go off in the newsroom and their chatter to start. Yep, there's definitely <laughs> definitely something about it. But I mean, I, what impressed me the most is that you were you were in and around in, in that time and, and working, um, as I was saying, for the BBC. And um, I just remember my introduction, and I've never been 
brilliant at it. It's something I never wanted to do, but it was something I got told I had to do was news reading. And uh, the guy who sort of uh, led me through the news reading, um, I think he's also long past, uh, was a guy by the name of Jeremy Dawes. Rush, I know the name, Jeremy Dawes, yeah, news reader, yeah. yeah. And he was, every last syllable had to be enunciated and pronounced correctly. And I used to get smacked on the head so many times when I made mistakes during broadcasts. And those were the days, because I think if we had to do that to, to any young newsreader today, we'd be in serious trouble. <laughs> anyway, no, Dan, when we no, come no, back... You know, just, just a quick one before you go for your break. Quick one. Yeah. When I wrote my first story, I was very proud of it. So I wrote my first story. Uh, Ian Chris had given me a copy from AFP, Agence France Press. So I write my story on a typewriter typewriter, then I give it to him. He reads this, he looks at across the newsroom, he cramples it up, he says, you call this a new story? This is an essay, can you write me a new story? He throws it across across the newsroom. Try and do that today in a newsroom. No, no. <laughs> anyway, listen, when we come back, uh, we're going to be wrapping it up with Dan, our time is, is almost up. Uh, but I want to move on to uh, once he's back in South Africa, the 702 days um, and where he is now, this is what's involved. Uh, my guest is Dan Moyani, author of I Don't Want to Die Unknown. Uh, we need to listen to our inner voice. Back with Dan in just a while. This is what's involved. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. More next. And we're back. What's involved? It is wrapping it up with my special guest, Dan Moyani. So, Dan, you know, when I think about 702, um, I remember um, I, was, I was doing national service in 85, 86, um, which in and of itself was, was a horrific time for so many of us um, and a continuation of, of the horror. Um, and there was no real end in sight at that stage. But then 702 launched as this uh, music radio station. And I remember where we were at our, at our camp, we were not allowed to listen to 702, if it was Radio 702 at those days, because it was so subversive. So, of course, what did I do? I waited until nighttime, and it was great for medium wave frequencies, and I used to listen to this subversive radio station, and they were just so different, so fresh. Um, and then the time came, and they changed to a talk format, and everybody said, it'll never work. You guys will never be successful, South Africa cannot deal with a talk radio station. How did you come to be on 702? Okay, 12 years on Radio Mozambique's uh, English service, as I've explained, from 1980, well, 11 years to 91, sorry, 11 years, including uh, as well, uh, 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 um, um, in for the Deep uh, from 1985 to 1981. Uh, one day, 1990, I get a call, and this lady says, hi, my name is Debbie Hewitz. I'm phoning from Radio 702 in Johannesburg. Uh, our normal correspondent is away, and he's given us your name, and one of our editors has had you reporting on Mozambique for the BBC. We would like a crossing with you this afternoon on the latest attack by Renamo Rebels in northern northwestern province of Tete. They've attacked a commercial convoy from South Africa of trucks and goods on its way to Malawi. Would you be able to tell us about this? I said, 
okay, who is Radio 702? She says, no, we are privately owned. Because when I left the country in 79, there was no Radio 702 in South Africa. So she explained who they were. So I said, okay, fine, I'll call me back in a few minutes. I put the phone down. I phoned a couple of people. I said this and this and this. And they said, no, check. I spoke to Ian Christie as well, my editor at the time. He said, yeah, no, he doesn't know it, but he's heard about it. But da, da, da. I phoned the guy who's their correspondent, a friend of mine, Carl, Carl Meyer. He was overseas at the time. He says to me, yeah, no, Dan, it's, a, it's an independent station. Don't worry. You can you can talk to them. It's fine, it's fine, fine. I said, okay. Let me check. Then I phoned the beep. I said, beep. And I spoke to, to Robin White. He was an editor at the time at the BBC at uh, Bush House in London. He says to me, no, Dan, fine. It's a local station down there. Johannesburg, it's okay, but they're just needing some help. Don't worry. They're not competing with us, the BBC. Don't worry. You can go ahead. So they called back. I said, fine, I'll do it. That's how I got to know 702, 1990. And I come back home. Uh, when I come back home, very briefly, uh, David, my father was, was retired and he was very ill. My mom had just been retrenched. My sister was working as a casual uh, cashier for checkers, not shop like checkers, the old checkers, the green and yellow checkers, the old days. So so, so I come back home and I'm the eldest son. And my father says, oh, welcome back. We're going to need you to help us here with some livelihoods because uh, we are, I'm, 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 I'm now retired and my retirement is, the money I get is little and your mom has just been retrenched as well. No, and your sister, we need your help. So what? So I said, fine. So when I came back, my, my plan, which had been put into motion, was to go and do a master's in political science at the University of the Western Cape, which had been done and approved and stuff had been sorted. And thankfully, uh, I got help from, from uh, Dr. Rob Davis, and, and I was going to work with the likes of him and, and Professor Peter Vale. But my father says, we need your help. So I said, I need a job. So I said, where to go to? So I went with my father to 702. I knocked on the door because I had done one or two crossings for them. I wanted to meet them. Then I met Mike Mike Wills. He was the he was the editor in the newsroom. And then I told him I'm back home, and you guys have used me. Is there any any gig available? He said, No, nah, we don't have anything. Blah, 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 blah. So I kept on knocking on the door. Then they gave me a 12 week freelance contract uh, starting from August. 1991. That's how I got into, into 702. And after a few months, they offered me a full time. I got in as a duty editor, as you said, uh, flying that news desk and, and, and working with reporters. And then by 1994, I was assistant news editor at 702. 95, they then offered me the morning show to co-host with John Robbie. And, and that's when most of uh, of 702 land, as we call it, uh, uh, go to know me and the, and the rest of South Africa, right up to that Shoshaloza moment at Ellis Park at the final of the Rugby rugby World Cup. That's also an incredible story, your own version of Shoshaloza. Um, but, and I'm not going to dive into it too much here, Dan, but um, at, at the time, um, there, was, we, there was still a fair amount of politics uh, within the halls of, of uh 702 and prime media and decisions were being made and um, you left there for a while, didn't you? Yes, I did. I mean, remember at the time, I, I know people, it's not, it's not, it's not the significance of this. It's not about be, be, being, be, being the first, but I was told I was the first black South African 
on 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 702 to be doing news and stuff. The late Alice Chavanduka from Zimbabwe had been reading news on that station for some time as a first black female voice uh, on that. So there was a lot of of, of rejection. I mean, I used to get abusive calls from white listeners predominantly and saying, what am I doing on a white radio station? I must go and work for Radio Zulu and stuff like that. (laughs) But I had the support of the team. But at some point I was pulled off air, which was very disappointing. And uh, I was told that, no, 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 I'm not ready yet. Having worked in media for the likes of the BBC for over five years and having worked in English radio broadcast since 1980, I mean, to be told that you're not ready for radio was unbelievable. So I, I, it was driven really by, by racial stereotypes, sadly, in this in this country. And uh, management did not support me in its totality. Some people supported me at 702. As you said, there were politics in the corridors and others did not. And then and then I left uh, uh, 702 in 97 when Stan Katz and the management team decided to make another lineup change, which uh, still to date, I don't understand why. Uh, John Robbie and I had been doing quite a good job on air by 1997, we had settled and and we had become uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, uh, of of morning radio in town and coming from different backgrounds and and we had done that. But anyway, I moved on. I moved on and 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 then two years later, 702 came back after me asking me to come back in 99 and they offered me the role of station manager. Then I went back as station manager in 1999 at 702 and that led to me going into the boardroom, uh, uh, David, as executive chairman of Prime Media Broadcasting uh, from 2002-2003 all the way until 2008. And and after that, by the time the, the, the the, the company had acquired KFM in Cape Town and now we had a stable of four and I had successfully led a team to, to apply at ICASA to get 702 from medium wave onto FM because the medium wave, as you know today, was dying as a, as a transmission and, uh, and 702's viability was being uh, was being threatened quite a bit. We were successful in that in that in that endeavor, and then I left uh, Prime Media in 2008, and that, and that was the last time I I worked there and went into into private public relations communications work. Then I was headhunted by Momentum, an insurance company, to be their communication executive, assisting them with media relations. And I've been consulting with them ever since. Uh, And then in 2009, I was asked by um, ETV to launch uh, the big debate program. And and then I did that. And after that, I was uh, given the afternoon news shift at ENCA. A television station. And um, today I'm doing the uh, afternoon again from three to five. So I've been sort of uh, straddling both worlds or the two worlds of communication, media on one side and, and the corporate communication side uh, pretty much since 2009. And for that, I'm grateful because David, I get bored very easily. John Robbie used to joke and say that I've got an attention span of a flea. I don't I don't focus on one thing for too long. So I've always done more than one thing in, in my life ever since I started work, uh, especially since 1985. Yeah, I know that feeling. I've I've been told on more than one occasion that I have the attention span of a cabbage. So you know, if you've got the attention span of a flea, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah so then, yeah. as we as we wrap up, why why the book? I mean, you are. 
Um, you know, the last person that's you're, you're certainly not going to die unknown. I mean, South Africa and Africa, and indeed across the world, a lot of people know exactly who Dan Mayani is or who they believe he is. So why the book? And what what has our inner voice got to do with it? Okay, the book the book it was it comes at the time of my life when you know during the lockdown you, you're reflecting about things and I've been meaning to write it since 2015. I actually started uh, writing it in 2015. Then I stopped. I said, ah, you know, writing about yourself, David, is one of the hardest things. So I said, ah, you know, it's just vanity or what? Let's leave this thing, you know. And then, uh, and then, uh, 2019 and 2020 comes, and we get hit by this coronavirus pandemic all over the world, and you know all the stuff that has happened. Then I'm thinking, okay, when you engage with people and you look at what people are saying about one another or other people on social media and stuff, you realize that people form their own views. They'll always do. They, they, then the, your, the narratives that will be given to whatever you've done. And I thought to myself, and people keep on telling me when they meet, ah, oh, this is Dan Moyan, this and this and this, yeah, that's what people know. But I don't want a situation where uh, my my own story is, is told by other people. And, and when I realized this was that my dad and my mom and my sister, who's also passed, uh, may their souls rest in peace. They, 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 they did not. They have, they have these remarkable life stories uh, in their journeys, but it was never put down. So I'm telling it to my kids, and there must be detail and, and good stuff that is lost. So while I care, let me put it down. So it's part memoir, part legacy, because as I say towards the end of my book, uh, uh, to my grandchildren, I don't have any now. I don't know if I will. But that's a metaphoric way of looking at the future. To my grandchildren, when they read this, they need to get something to say, ah, so this is the guy that people say he was and stuff like that. It's important that we tell our stories. And 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 Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian writer, says, until, you know, the lions, you know, uh, tell the story of the hunt, you know, they, or they have historians rather, the story, the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So, so you want you want your story to be told by yourself. It's important, David, that you too you tell your story. You you put it down, and 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 as you said, there's so much stuff that has happened in the past that we don't talk about. It's not documented for whatever reason. There's various reasons, but I, I felt it was important, and the time is now, and and it's important so that part of the legacy that I, I leave for for anybody is that there was something I shared about my memories of the time I went through. If one person, I mean, if people take one thing out, one person takes one thing out that resonates with them from the book, for me, then I've touched somebody's life and that's fine. That's the legacy. And I think that is that is incredible. And I've often said to said as well, you know, if, if, if my broadcasting and podcasting makes a difference in one person's life, my job is done. Um, yeah. And I've had a bunch of fun doing it. We all know what uh, trying to be in broadcast media is like. Um, we always used to have the joke, I'm sure you heard it as well, at Prime Media, is how can you tell the radio presenter at the beach? Uh, he's the one with all the stab marks in his back. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, John Becks, uh, may he sold recent piece, he passed on recently. Yes. Uh, uh, he, 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 he gave me advice when I was 
uh, appointed uh, as well as a co-host with John Robbie on the morning because he'd done the morning show. He was a king of morning radio for a long time, John. Oh, yeah, and 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 yeah, and he he gave me advice. And one of them, he says, as soon as that was announced, and just imagine everybody's got a knife waiting to put it uh, at your back. But he says, just be yourself. Just be who you are. Doesn't matter what they say, what they do. Just enjoy the ride, kid. He said, and just be who you are. <laughs> yeah, he was an absolute legend and, and tragic to, to hear of his passing not too, not too long yes. ago. Uh, Dan, mm. as, we, as we wrap it up today, um, one of the things that's always struck me about you, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you, is you're an incredible storyteller and you add so much life and vibrancy and color to, to your stories. Um, and as you said, there's your story. There's many, many people's stories that, that need to be told because at the moment where we are in our country is not where any of us thought we were going to be back in 1994. Um, so, Dan, in terms of the legacy, in terms of, of Dan Mayani, what's next for you? I, in my mind, I... I'm, I, I'm known, as you said, what for? You know, it's not about my ego. <laughs> it can't be. Otherwise, it's been a waste. What has driven me all the time is to make a difference. So, and I've realized this. I, I, I gave an interview in the 90s to a journalist, Maureen Isaacson. She was writing for the Tonight Supplement of the Star newspaper those days. And in it, as young as I was in my early 30s, I spoke about making a difference. I understand that better today than I did then when I expressed it for the first time in public. So my sense now is the next chapter for me has to be a life of significance. I know who I am today better than I did yesterday, David. I need to be who I am to the best of my ability, be that to the best of my ability for the benefit of others. So that I need to, when people look at me, my grandchildren, somebody's going to talk about me one day when I'm gone, they should look, but you know, he lived a life of significance. You know, he was a significant guy, not a rich guy, a wealthy guy, a moneyed guy, a guy who did this. No, no, we had many awards. He, was, he, he lived a life of significance. He was a significant guy. He was inspirational. And 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 he he was creative, you know, uh, in his way in terms of uh, expressive and storytelling, as you said just now. Thanks for 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 giving me that feedback, and it, it confirms what I think. And 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 he educated us. He touched us in ways uh, as a mentor, as a as a coach, as somebody. That's really what is next in my chapter. In my chapter is to live a life of significance for the rest of my life. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And and I have no doubt you will, Dan. And I, and I hope we get to chat again sometime. And who knows, maybe we can even sit down and have a cup of coffee or something like that. Um, the book is available in all good bookstores. Is it available online as well? Yes, it is on Amazon. It's available online as well. And uh, what I'm mulling about, David, uh, is uh, to, should I do an audio recording of my book? You know, I, my, with oh. my voice. I don't know. Now that you've just told me that I'm a good storyteller, colorful, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should read my book and get it recorded. Dan, I think that and, would uh, be a brilliant audiobook. idea. A brilliant audiobook. idea. Yeah, yeah cause I love I, I, Amazon's uh, sort of sister company or part of Amazon is Audible. And, and if I could listen to your story as an Audible, an audio book, I think it would be fantastic. So 
Come on, knock him dead. Dan, thank, thank you very you. much, David. Thank, thank you, me. thank you. It's been absolutely Keep wonderful. It wraps it up. Uh, get the book because it's not only the story of, of Dan's life, but it's his observances and the things that he's seen and done um, that, that just tell such a great story. Um, the title is I Don't Want to Die Unknown. We Need to Listen to Our Inner Voice by Dan Moyani. Uh, get the book. You will not regret it. It wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to What's Involved. We hope this episode inspires you to find your passion and live your dream. Don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. And to see what's happening, what's going on, and what's coming, follow What's Involved on Facebook and Twitter at What's Involved. Thanks again for listening.